Tennessee, the Boy. volunteer state. Make sure you go to our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that newsletter. You need to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. And, of course, we have a podcast, which many of you are listening to right now, mm-hmm. and you found it at iTunes or SoundCloud, Music Biz, Ampersand, 101. No, Music Biz 101, <laughs> Ampersand, more. Music Biz 101 and more. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp. Who are you? I am Stephen Marconi. Dr. Esteban. Yes. And so as you listen, you'll hear a student. You're going to hear a great, great person. But this was a summer class because of William Patterson, the university. So we want to thank Ashley Weltner, who's been our engineer for all of our radio shows over the past year. And she hooked us up with this tremendous technique of recording that we're doing right now. And we should give thanks. So we put our uh, hands together, legs together, eyes closed, heads down. Thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno, Inc., and White Hat Management with artists like Charlie Puth, Dave Matthews, and Kith. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB CPA.com when you are ready. And we should all give thanks to Christine Vey. Oi, a wealth manager and the president of <laughs> Oi Vey Management. <laughs> Oi Vey Wealth Management. <laughs> Christine has helped many of our professionals at William Patterson the University to manage their investments and plan out for their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, or if you have any questions on anything from investments and portfolio management to insurance retirement planning, give Christine a call at, repeat after me, 732. 732. 455. 455. 1510. 1510. You can also email her, Christine at Oi. They wealth. Com. And take the last oi off for savings. That's right. Many shout-outs to many different people, but don't forget Managing Your Band 6th Edition. By the time you hear this, it has been out for a year, but like fine wine, it's aging beautifully. Mm-hmm. It's a book. It's in color. It's got glossy pages. And only a few mistakes. Very few mistakes. <laughs> so you're going to love it. And always contact, contact us. Again, go to musicbiz101wp.com, and that's where you can find everything out. Again, big thanks to the Music Biz Association for having us here. Yes. And now on to La Interview. Mm. We, have, we, have we have three hours with you, <laughs> and you pay us by the hour. Yeah. So when did you get in? I need a coffee. Um, I got in at 3 in the morning. Uh, and I couldn't fall asleep till like 5.30 and then I had to wake up at 8. I woke up at 8. Yeah, I'm really tired. <laughs> but I'm kind of used to it. I got young kids, so kind of up a lot. But I could yeah. use a coffee. Uh, how old are you guys? 24. 21. 20. Like 20. Yeah. Mostly undergrad. Like 20 to 30. <laughs> 50. 22. Yeah. You're 72? 
He's looking good. <laughs> He's looking really good. Thank you. Yeah, but it's William Patterson uh, University from New Jersey, so it's a mix of biz, uh, undergrad and graduates getting their MBA in music and entertainment management. How is Jersey? My Jets might have a quarterback finally. I don't know yet. Yeah, so, uh, yeah me too, man. It's, I've been hearing about Joe Willie Namath for way too long. I, when, when Brett Favre ran out, I cried, and then he just broke my heart a year later. <laughs> I'm teaching my three-year-old son that the Meadowlands is a holy place that we're going to go visit a couple times a year. <laughs> and he's going to be very disappointed. <laughs> Uh, all right, you guys ready? Yeah, yeah. Go. All right. So we are ready for questions by your PR person. Oh, they wrote the questions. Your PR person said yes. All right, you guys can go rogue. I don't care. Also. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You ask your question, or you can ask whatever you want. Okay. She well, just tries to protect me, but it's all good. Yeah. Right. Protect me from you guys. Okay, so my first question, is it fair to connect your drive to break new artists and reportedly at times be a tad bit hard on them with a fear of failure you reportedly had after dropping out of college and then getting fired from So So Deaf, which was Jermaine Dupri's label? <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, approved, that's all I can say. <laughs> uh, it's good, it's good, I like it. You know, it was, it was a strange thing that the fear of failure isn't a driver for me anymore. Um, the fear of failure was something that I kind of discovered I mean, it's easy to say now when you've had success that you don't have a fear of failure. What I thought was a fear of failure later on in life is you get older, you start to see things and have reflections and start to understand things a little bit better and, you know, really have revelations. And what I realized is the biggest driving force in my life was never a fear of failure. It was, um, it was a need for respect. And when I look back at my life, I saw that every single time someone had disrespected me, it drove me to keep going. Um, and I thought it was fail, you know, fear of failure. And when I found success, I was like, well, why am I still like this? And I realized that was an excuse that I made up in my own head. I, I thought it was a fear of failure, but I had already had, I was lucky enough in my life to have a really strong foundation with my family and have a lot of love in my life um, from my parents. So what I thought I was going to be a failure and thought I had to prove something to them and to everyone else, I realized, you know, no matter how much money I had, no matter how much success I had, they didn't care. I, I had already had their respect. Um, so I realized in their eyes I could never be a failure no matter what I did. And when I came to terms with that, I really let go of it and I started to look for, well, what is this driving force? Um, because deep down I'm quite lazy. And I just haven't been lazy for about 20 years now. I am keep waiting to be lazy again. Um, but uh, it was, you know, Jermaine, his mom came in one day and started saying some crazy stuff. And I said, Tina, I respect you and I respect your son. And I talked to Jermaine yesterday. I love him forever. He gave me an opportunity. Um, but because I stuck up for myself and really my staff members, I was fired. Um, and then told, oh, two weeks later, we'll work it out. Don't worry about my mom. And that was such a disrespectful thing when I was the number one earner in the company. I was 23 years old. Um, that that drove me to want to do something. Uh, it was the idea, I found little things disrespectful. They called me a party promoter. 
I was like, I'm more than a party promoter. If they call me a music manager now, I find that disrespectful in my own twisted mind. And I'm like, no, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to show you what I can do in movies and film. So that's the same thing. In, in television, in tech, you know, I'm going to prove to you, you know, they tell us that you can't be a family man and, you know, be an executive in this business and have work-life balance. I'm going to prove you wrong there. Um, so it was always the disrespect. And the last couple of years, I really think I, in the music business, I think I've been the laziest for the last two years. Because everyone just started being like, man, you really don't mess with him. He, he, you know, they said Justin Bieber was done. Well, no, he's not. You know, and, you know, they said, oh, we got fired by Ariana. Oh, they're back together. Or, you know, uh, you can't manage Kanye West more than a month. Well, the last two and a half years, who knows what the hell's happening now. <laughs> um, um, but, uh, you know, for me, you know, it was constantly this thing that you can't do it. And that was, even as a little kid, it was... I was four foot 11 my freshman year of high school. I grew 12 inches in high school and I was on the basketball team. I was the starting point guard and I went and played in college and you know, they were like, you're too small. That disrespect drove me crazy. Um, so it was this constant need to, to prove to people I could do something. And, and for the last two years I was looking for that disrespect and I had a, a lunch with Lucy and Grange over at Universal and he was telling me that people want to see me six feet under and you know, he was trying to pump me up, and at the end, I looked at myself. I, I don't know if this is true, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, we're going on a tear again. So uh, I, I hope that answered your question. But I don't really feel like I need to be hard on on artists unless it's hard with being honest with them. Um, I don't really feel like I got to yell at someone unless you find yourself in a position where they need to hear certain truth from a certain place. But no one's threatening my family. No one's threatening my health. You know, I don't really need to yell at people to achieve my goal. And I, I still remember, I'll, I'll end your answer with this. Um, I still remember, you know, when I first uh, did, did my deal with Justin over at Def Jam, uh, L.A. Reid was there. And L.A. Reid was notorious for, like, yelling at people. And uh, I come into the office one day, and he just starts screaming at me about something. It didn't even make sense. And when he was done, I just looked at him and I said, listen, you know, we're going to work together, so let's just make this really clear from the start. You know, I've been down in Atlanta dealing with a lot of crazy stuff the last couple of years, but I was raised by a crazy Hungarian father. And, you know, if you're going to yell at me, that's really not going to work because you're not going to intimidate me. So why don't we have a conversation? Because that, that shit isn't happening. And he looked at me real puzzled. Then he smiled, and he never yelled at me again. And we've had an amazing relationship since. Um and a good working relationship, but you know this this idea you need to put someone down to feel powerful is. Can I be honest with you for your radio show? Yeah. That's some bitch shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> end of my answer. <laughs> How did you make the transition from marketing at a label to starting your own multimedia company? I was at the label, and I was also a big party promoter, um, and and no matter how, uh, I was the youngest vice president in music. And I was doing really well. Uh, we had the Usher Confessions album that we executive produced. We had Emancipation of Mimi from Raya. I had done the um, Anthony Hamilton was the proudest project I had because I was so close to those guys and no one thought we could do it. And, you know, we had a platinum record. The transition happened because, you know, like I said before, his mom came in one day and for some reason just started telling all of us that we're all using her son and you know, this, that, and the other. And I said, look, with all due respect, like I have a 
pretty good situation outside of this building and, and I love your son and he's giving me an opportunity, but it's not like he's paying me a lot of money. And, um, she said something that out of respect for him and what he did for my life, I will never say what actually happened, but it was something that was so disrespectful and so wrong, uh, that I was taken aback and felt a need respectfully to leave. Um, and when I came back the next day to exert her power, I guess she fired me, um, with a, with a letter not even to my face, a letter in my mailbox. Um, and I was like, this is some BS. But then I looked, and Jermaine's signature was on the bottom. So I went over to see him, and I said, what is this? And he's like, man, I just don't want to fight with my mom. Just give it two weeks, and we'll work it out. And that's when I realized there wasn't a future there for me. Um, and I remember I drove my car from there uh, to the parking lot of a Publix uh, near my house in Decatur. And um, I sat on the hood of my car because I knew I didn't want to be in the job for about six months prior, but I was too scared to leave because it was my identity. I was locked in who I was being this young VP. Um, and I had all these ideas about social media that no one was listening to me anyway. And um, I remember sitting there and I was like, you don't really have a choice now. You're scared as hell. You're 23. You've been this whiz kid for him but you got to do something because there's nowhere to go now. And my little brother, uh, I was about to be about to be 24. My little brother uh, was on the semester at sea boat that got hit by the tsunami wave and he had like certain death and by miracle that the, the kids on that boat survived after four hours of being rocked by 40 foot swells in Arctic waters. Um, and that changed his life and he already had an offer. He was the smart one, the family, him, my sister, and my other brother. Um, I'm the black sheep, believe it or not. He went backpacking. Like, he basically, like, was like, you know, I had a full offer to Bain for a job. He was planning on making a ton of money, and he just didn't want to do that anymore. He saw death and, you know, stared in the face and wanted to help people. Um, so he was backpacking. I was reading this blog he had, and I just couldn't believe. I always thought backpacking was the thing rich kids did to escape their lives. And really, my brother was living in $5 a night hostels, 15-hour bus rides, spending maybe $30 a month. <laughs> and, you know, sleeping on the streets. And he was just going around South America, becoming fully fluent in Spanish. And his blogs were incredible because he was living every day as a new adventure. So I, um, I basically started this whole process of figuring out what I want to do. And then I bought a one-way ticket to Chile. And I met him down there. And for about a month, I backpacked with my brother and found my belief in humanity again. You know, because being in Atlanta in, in a cash party promotion business in the murder capital of the United States at the time, your word was your bond or you got hurt. And I didn't really trust people. Like, I was just like, I always was looking over my shoulder. Uh, and then what happened with, you know, Jermaine, I really didn't trust people. And when I went down there, I go in a hostel with my brother. And, I'm, you know, he, he's like, so we're going to stay in this room with six strangers. And I was like, okay, cool. Where do we put our bag that has all of our materials and our only belongings. And he's like, in that cubby. And I was like, and, and where are the doors and the lock to the cubby? And he was like, oh, there are no doors. I was like, what if we get robbed? And he was like, you got to trust people. And I was like, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but by the end of the process, you know, there were times people got robbed, there were times they didn't, but you just kind of realize that going through life, assuming everyone's going to do harm to you is a horrible way to live. And bad things are going to happen to you, but you can't go through life, you know, assuming those bad things. Otherwise, there's no point in being here. Um, and when I came back, 
I had this kind of new lease on life. Uh, and I had a bunch of other amazing experiences on that trip, but that would make this question even, you know, answer too long. Um, but when I came back, I basically found Asher Roth on MySpace. I found Justin on YouTube, um, all within like six months. And these were two artists that nobody wanted. Um, and that's what I needed. Like everyone said, they were like, cute kid, but like, what are you going to do with him? And I was like, I'm going to make the biggest artist in the world. And they were like, yeah, okay, whatever. You're crazy. He's lost it. <laughs> Go back, backpacking. You've lost your mind. <laughs> um, and, and Asher, I just saw an open lane. Um, and Asher Ross, I Love College, really saved my company, which I'll answer in another question along down the line. Um, but as far as the multimedia thing, I read a book about David Geffen called The Operator, which David hates, because uh, years later he became my mentor. Um, and he said music was the fastest way in. Movies take years, film, uh, I keep doing that. Movies take years, TV takes years, uh, but a song can change your life in a night. Um, and I was in Atlanta, Georgia, the hotbed for music, so I said I'm gonna really double down on this. Um, another friend of mine, Shaka Zulu, who manages Ludacris, um, we went to a basketball game and he's like, you know, you wait a lifetime to get one. One can be enough, one star can be enough to make your whole career. So I was like, I'm gonna break two right out the gate, show everybody. <laughs> so that's why I did Asher and Justin. And um, I never had aspirations to just be in the mu mu music business. That's why even now, if, if I was to lose a client, you know, a friend of mine called me and they're like, everything okay? And I said, let me be, re be really clear. If I lose all my clients, I don't want you to call me and ask me if I'm okay. I want to call me and say, you excited for your vacation? <laughs> um, I don't want to be a music manager until I'm 60, or 70 years old, I want to look like this dude and look good. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, it's it, it's a it's a tough job. It's an amazing thing. There's a lot of gratification. I've had an incredible career, um, but I, I have a lot of things I want to do, and I only get one life to do them. So that's why I wanted to go and build a multimedia business because I'm just too. I got ADD. I got I got to satisfy all this hunger. So that's really where it came from, and the idea of someone saying well that's too much well it's gonna somebody's gonna do it why not me as an artist manager how do you assure that your artist is getting the best deal that they can get that's the fun part about the music business um as far as music artists that we represent you know we also have like ashley graham and carly Kloss, and we're starting to do other stuff and we represent businesses now and make investments but as far as a music manager goes we are in the wild wild west you know athletes have uh unions um you know, if you're if you're dealing with you know the stock market, you, you got you know government institutions watching you. Um, if you're dealing with uh, the movie business, you got SAG and you got all these things. We don't have anything. Like there are absolutely no rules to what you can do in the music business. So for an entrepreneur, that's a lot of fun because I don't have to. I love Don Passman. I just saw him this week. Everyone reads the book when they come in the business, and they're like, "Oh, the Don Passman book." But that's one set of rules from the business. It is not what I've done. You know, I like to look at everybody. Like I'm, I'm building deals now based on what they do in Korea and Japan, where it's 360 deals with services, and we don't double dip. So an artist, yeah, someone could say, oh, my God, you guys are, you know, conflict of interest. Well, you know what's not a conflict? Making our artists more money and saving them more money um, and having left chefs in the kitchen so we can be more efficient. So, you know, it, it's as far as how I get them the best deals, you know, you push for something that is unheard of and you push for the best. And you also make sure that any deal you do, you can walk away. 
if you know you can walk away, you've won before the negotiations even started. And you also have to establish a reputation for yourself early. So I can't tell you how many times I've been in a negotiation and the smallest thing over like a not important negotiation and I'll flip out and walk away. And everyone will be like, why are you blowing up this deal? This is crazy. And I said, I'm not blowing up this deal. I'm making the next one. I'm establishing a, a behavior for them that when I say I'm out, I'm out. And a lot of times I'll send a deal and it's a good deal. And the lawyer comes back and they say, well, look, here's the negotiation and here's our counter and here's our red line. And I said, I don't think you understood. The deal I sent you was the deal. This is what you're going to take or we're not doing the deal because I sent you very fair terms, which you've admitted, and now you're just being greedy. So I'm moving on. And then they'll call back and, oh, we can discuss. I said, I don't think you understand. We're done. Like, just let your client know that there's no longer an offer. I've pulled the offer. And then they come back and they usually say, can we, you know, please get this back together? And I don't have to really do that anymore because everyone kind of knows I've established a pattern of behavior. So they know I'm willing to walk away. Um, and that makes things a lot easier and a lot better. And I also, because I've built a business where I don't necessarily, and this is a place of privilege that I'm saying this, my business is large enough now and I've had enough success that no artist is going to change my lifestyle. Um, so I can do things on behalf of my artist that maybe some other managers can't because they depend on maybe that deal paying their rent or paying their mortgage the next day. And I'm in a place where I have no problem doing what's right and not even thinking about what the money means to me because I already went through that process. So it's, you know, I sit down with some artists. I say, look, here's the good news. You don't have to ever worry that I'm going to be greedy because I don't need to be. And that's a very different place than a lot of people. And I've always had that mentality that we'll get there. And I never made it about what money I'm making. I made it about long term. Um, and, you know, when I, when I took Justin off the road for those years, he hated me like he had his issues and some of the worst things anyone's ever said to me came from him to me um but i knew that wasn't him and mm -hmm. i knew i needed to do what was right for him and i knew that i didn't need the money you know of him being on tour i could do the right thing so like when i saw the amy winehouse movie and i saw her that manager say it's my job to make sure her shows are right and get her to her shows and do the deals it's not my job to manage her life I wanted to literally reach through the screen, screen and beat the shit out of this guy. Um, because your artists are very sensitive creatures. And for you to put yourself in a place where you don't think you have a responsibility, yes, they're adults. They have to be accountable. But so do you. And um, I, we're in a business where I know way too many people that have killed themselves. And not just artists, way too many executives. And I think that part of doing deals on behalf of your artist is also showing the artist that they're talking to someone who sees their self-worth more than the deal. Because even with executives, we get tied up way too much in what is my identity in this world. And I'm just for young students coming up, this world is a great business. It's a lot of fun and you get to be a part of some amazing stuff, but it's not reality. It's not real. Like your friends, your family, I promise you, I've been a part of winning Grammys. I've been a part of pretty much winning every award in the world. I've had the biggest tours in the world. I've pretty much everything that you could do in this business at 36, I've now achieved it. And I don't point to any of them as the happiest moments in my life. Not one. I could name a time where I was at a bar with my friends and be like that night or sitting around a fire pit and someone's playing guitar and we're just hanging out 
or hanging out with my kids or my wife. Like those are much better times. So from someone who's been to the top of the mountain, that's how I look at all this. So when I'm doing the deal, I don't have any fear because I know it's not reality. Um, if money were no object, would you rather work with smaller artists or bigger artists? So like, is there any particular aspect of either that you like more? Um, I'm a glutton for punishment. I guess that's why I'm still doing this. Because I don't really, I mean, to be honest, I don't need to worry about money anymore. You know, um, I've actually made more money outside of the music business than I've made in the music business at this point. Because um, I made certain investments along the way and things worked out really well for me. Um, yeah, I, my kids, my grandkids don't really need to worry anymore. That's a weird thing to say because 11 years ago I called my dad in the middle of the night and we were talking and I broke down crying at 25 years old saying I'm broke and no one knows. I'm two months away from having nothing and I got Asher off living in one place under my name and Justin and his mom living in another place under my name with Aaron rents furniture that I bought and you know no one knows I'm a failure and he goes we well, came this far see it through you got two more months and Asher wrote I love college the next day and saved my company. So that that line of success and failure live very very close to each other. Um, you know I I think as far as what type of artist I'd work with I, I kind of have that pleasure now. You know when I heard Tori Kelly sing for the first time, I could have just kept going with the big big pop superstar and you know this that. But I just saw someone that it was ridiculous to me that why is the world not hearing this person sing? How is this person? been signed at 14 then dropped she's never released an album this is one of the greatest voices i've ever heard in my life and a songwriter and people are just writing her off so i've never and she's now very successful she just bought her first house you know we do about six thousand tickets a night the next album is unreal her and and, and she did some gospel stuff with kirk franklin but she did the, the album primarily with jimmy napes who did the sam smith album and she really cracked the code. I mean, she'll talk about it soon, but she's gone through a lot of pain the last couple of years. You know, her, uh, her dad kind of walked out on her mom and she met the guy that she wanted to marry and her family didn't accept him. So there was like all this pain and she's never really talked about all the stuff that she's dealt with. And, uh, she never even talked about being mixed race. And like, she addresses all that stuff, um, on this next album and it's powerful. And, um, I've never looked at one PNL for Tori Kelly. I don't know how much money Tori Kelly's made me. I have no idea. Uh, I don't know if there's been losses. I don't. I, I have no idea. I just love Tori Kelly. You know, if I ask her to sing at my wife's birthday party, she shows up. If she asks me to do something, I show up. When she sings, I get goosebumps. So, the privilege of that is because I worked with other artists that were incredible, but those artists allowed me to build a company where I can make that choice based on who I love and what I love, not necessarily on what is commerce. Um, and now I'm able to do it. We're a big company now. And you know, yesterday I spent the entire day in, in meetings about film. Um, the day before I spent, you know, I had to do a bunch of tech meetings. Um, we announced a big cryptocurrency deal, you know, this past week. Uh, I have to make bets on what people love in my office now. And sometimes I find out that they're good A&R, sometimes they're great A&R, sometimes they're shit A&R. <laughs> but I want to give them the same opportunity because I don't get the goosebumps like I used to because I've, I've seen all the number ones. But when someone in my office gets their first number one, you know, when Mike George got his first platinum plaque with Martin Garrix, seeing his reaction to receiving a platinum plaque 
which it's been a long time since that happened to me, I got that first time goosebumps again. So for me, I still, f I kind of look for ways to, you know, hack it, make myself young again. I've been trying to figure it out with like health as well now. I'm like working out every day, trying to like stop myself from aging. I'm trying real hard. It's, it's hard. My shoulder hurts. <laughs> uh, does that answer it? I think so, yeah. All right, great. You think so? I can keep going. No, no, I <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. No, no, I want to make sure you're good. <laughs> uh, part of your company's slogan is, our goal is to inspire the world to try. What are some qualities that an artist has shown before being signed to convince you that they can live up to that slogan or goal and have uh, has an artist ever disappointed you? Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny how your students at a college in New Jersey and you know that <laughs> it's just it's it, this whole experience is really surreal for me because I, I don't really go out. I was a party promoter for a long time. I don't really I don't go to functions. I avoid award shows like the plague if I unless I have to go like I got to go to Billboard this weekend because Ariana's opening the show. And, um, you know, I come to this and I have to walk through that music conference to come to this room and people are staring at me <laughs> and that's weird because I still feel like the 19 year old kid in Atlanta trying to prove something and now like I walk in and we go to the counter and I'm gonna you know show my ID and get a badge and she's like uh, Mr. Braun you don't need a badge unless you want one is it <laughs> and, 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 and I'm kind of like this is weird <laughs> um, oh god because I haven't slept say your question again <laughs> I lost the track of where my thought was going. Okay, it is. Oh, no, I'm gonna find it again. You can remember it. Just give me the gist of it. Okay, so your your slogans. Your Inspire oh the world God. to try if an artist ever let me down. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> got it. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. Um, guys, that will happen again. Uh, oh, oh, good stuff. Okay. Um, you know... Justin was fearless when I first brought him to Atlanta. He had just turned 13. He and his mother had never been on an airplane before when I flew them down. His mother as well. They were from a small town. His mom was a, you know, a single teenage mother when she had him. Um, and I remember him getting in my car, and he was just completely fearless. Uh, and there's this famous story of I brought him over to see Jermaine at So So Deaf, and I told him, don't say anything about you being a singer because I'm not trying to do the deal here. And he was like, but I want to I meet you. That's the guy who does grills with Nelly. <laughs> and, uh, and Usher happened to walk in as we were walking in. He was freaking out. It was the first time they met. And uh, we're sitting there, and me and Jermaine are talking. And he's just with me. And he goes, hey, man, I'm a singer. You want to hear me sing? And I'm like, <laughs> and, uh, and it was just that fearlessness. I mean, I could throw him anywhere with his guitar, and he would just go. Um, and maybe that was youth, not knowing he could fail. I mean, I, I just worked with the kids on the Children's March. Um, and actually I just saw Emma yesterday, um, and, uh, and David, uh, you know, I remember one of the first times I talked to those, those kids and they never used the words, we're going to try. They were like, we're doing this. You know, they had just lost their friends. They, you know, they all have PTSD. Um, and there was this fearlessness in them because they were, they were young. Uh, and I think Justin had that as well, that kind of youthful, you haven't been jaded by the world yet, like we can do anything. Um, and, 
you know, I've, I've seen it, you know, through struggle. I saw it with Ariana in Manchester. You know, she, I wanted to do the One Love Manchester show right away. I mean, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, so I've known that kind of evil existed my entire life. Um, and my family's mixed, so, I, you know, we're like, we're like a KKK's dream. <laughs> we're like Jews who have like a little bit of Latino in us and then two adopted black brothers. So like we're like we would be like the favorite house for the burning cross. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty bad to say, but that's just the truth. Um, and and I, so with my brothers, I've seen things. I've seen you know going out to New York with them to like a spot, and I walk in and I'm not searched, and my brother who's standing right behind me gets stopped and searched. Um, and so I I'm aware that there's injustice in the world, and I'm aware there's people who aren't kind to everyone. Uh, and then I'm aware there's pure evil because of what my grandparents went through. So when Manchester happened, I was angry. I wasn't sad. I was like, you, you fucked with the wrong one. <laughs> and I wanted to do it right away, but it was such an unfair ask. So I finally get in front of Ariana, and she's broken, and I'm like, we need to go. And she's like, I'm never going to be able to sing these songs again. I'm never going to be able to put these outfits on. I'm not, I, can't, I can't do this. Like, we need to cancel this tour. I'm broken. You know, she couldn't stop crying. Her fans had just died. It was such an insensitive thing for me to do at that point. And I immediately realized it and backed off and went through the whole process of canceling the tour. And then when I got back to L.A., um, two days later, I woke up, I landed to all these text messages from her saying, call me, call me, call me. And I called her. She said, you know, I keep thinking about it. if I don't do something, these people died in vain. I'm not who I say I am. What should I do? And I told her the idea and she's like, I'm in. And, uh, at first, she wanted to go out right away, and I told her we should wait two weeks. You need to work on yourself. Make sure you're strong enough. And I want to set this up, going back to Manchester. And it's a much longer story of how that happened. We didn't even get the venue until the Thursday before. It was like a cra like everyone told me no. They're like, we're going to still be burying people. There's still people in the hospital. And we just refused to take no for an answer because we felt we had a responsibility, and we had the blessings of the families. Um, but when you talk about you know, not being disappointed with Inspire the World to Try, Ariana put something on her shoulders that was so extraordinary and so unfair of me to ask of her. Uh, and she's such a little person. Um, but she's one of the toughest human beings I've ever met in my life. And we never talked about what that show was going to be until the day before rehearsal. I finally told her what I put together because I didn't want her thinking about what was going on. I just wanted her to focus on her. So she didn't find out really anyone who was coming until the day before. Um, and then even hours before the show, she fully broke down was like I don't know if I could do this and we talked and when she walked out there she just turned it on and you know became a force um, and that wasn't about knowing if she should succeed that was about just trying you know trying for these people um, and she had met the families with me two days before we met each family of the deceased for 10 minutes at a time one on one mm -hmm. and there she was like I can't go on and um, after the first family and I said, as much as this hurts, it hurts worse for them. We have to stay here. And I thought I was the tough one. And about eight families in, a dad, I don't, I don't want to cry, but um, <laughs> a, dad, a dad walked in who, uh, I don't like to talk about this. A dad walked in who looked like he could be my friend, who was my age. And um, whew, he, he had his, uh, his daughter with him. And they would explain to us the story. And his wife um, had gone to pick up her daughter and his wife was killed and um, I'm sitting there trying to be the rock for Ariana and now I'm looking at someone who's my age who looks like he'd be my buddy 
and I started to realize what it would be like to send my wife to pick up my children and have mm. to be a single dad all of a sudden. And I lost it. And Ariana had to console me <laughs> um, and kind of get me to kind of come back. Uh, and then you talk about disappointment. My disappointment is never in someone not trying, because I haven't really seen that with artists. It's about, it is, it's just, it, what I mean by not trying is, most artists I meet with, but if I'm gonna do a deal with them, if they're gonna be part of the team, they have the goods, they have the talent. The ones that don't make it, it's not because they're not trying, it's because they never even step forward to know their opportunity because they sabotage themselves. So the Inspire the World to Try wasn't really targeted at arg artists, it was more targeted at executives. Letting you know that like, that why not mentality that I have now, like why can't it be you? And it's okay to fail because no one, I don't know if you guys ever saw, I did this talk online where I compared it to baseball. You ever see this? Okay, so what I basically said, I made it up one day and like, then I get a text from Drake, he was like, that baseball thing was awesome. I basically said that most people, let, let's say you went to Yankee Stadium and they said uh, Cy Young Award winner CC Sebastia is gonna throw his best pitches. And everyone is allowed to come and the winner gets a crazy cash prize, something nuts. Uh, and you're allowed to take as many swings as you want and everyone can come. So you can imagine people are lined up forever and they can take as many swings, but you don't get to swing until that other person gives up. So here's the truth. The majority of people aren't even going to come and swing. They're going to go in the crowd and watch on TV because they're going to say, I can never do that. I can't hit a home run off CC Sabathia. Forget that. So they're not even trying. Then you have the people who get in line and start to swing, and most people will take one swing, hear the boos, say this was ridiculous, and walk away. Then you'll have the person who takes 25, 30 swings, and everyone's booing, and everyone in the line is saying, you're an asshole. We've been waiting here all day. There's a million more of us. Get out of the way. It's our turn. And they get discouraged by everyone else, and they feel a need to like give someone else a try because, oh, this is going to happen, and they hear that. And then you have the one person who keeps swinging and keeps swinging and the crowd is booing and the people behind them are yelling, get out of the way, you're never gonna do it, it's my turn, it's my turn. And they keep swinging. And then the millionth swing, they hit it, the home run. No one ever remembers the boos, no one ever remembers the chance, no, they just remember who hit it. And that's what I mean by inspire the world to try. Most of the time, people just give up, not because they don't have the goods, it's because they give up. They hear the haters and they just quit because they can't take the abuse. And if you can kind of quiet the crowd and realize that you have the goods and that you just need to focus and it might take time, but you'll get there, that's the kind of mentality I mean. And when I see artists not make it, it's usually because you know, they're scared so they start self-medicating and there's drug use or um, they just give up because of some reason and it's or it's too hard and the road's too hard and I'm here for the, I love that excuse I'm here for the music I didn't sign up for this <laughs> yeah well at the first meeting you told me you'll do whatever it takes and then that seems to have gone out the window um, it's but the ones who make it they struggle too I struggle I've had a lot of success I still go to sleep at night sometimes scared that I'm not gonna be able to like do it the next day and then I fight through that feeling but you you need to kind of quiet the crowd and keep going and you know, the, the, whether it be an executive or an artist, the ones who don't make it are the ones that either never swing at all 
or get scared and stop swinging. I'm going to do a little variation because mine is, what is the single most important lesson that you have learned from all the artists you've mentioned, uh, managed? You know, you've mentioned a lot, but it's like, what's the one thing that stands out above the rest? Patience. I was never a patient person. Um, and I was pretty spoiled with, with uh, Justin because he was a kid. And he really, you know, looked up to me as a kid. So kind of just did what I said. And I didn't know artists talk back. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, we should do this. Okay. <laughs> like, and, um, and, you know, that was kind of the push and pull. I mean, Justin and our relationship wasn't manager artist. It was like family. You know, it was the young male rebelling against the adult male and being like, I can show you. And along the way, I was like, I already think you're a man. Like, you don't have to prove to me you're a man anymore. And then for a while, he didn't believe that. Like, he couldn't see that because that's what us idiot males do. Um, <laughs> he looked at his buddy like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> um, so, you know, the best thing artists have taught me and management has taught me as a whole, it's made me a much better person. And it's also equipped me for, I think, the times that we live in in this country. Um, when you're a kid, you're taught if you see something that's wrong, you should strike it down and and way to go. But what and, and they, we, we hear these lessons about good and evil. And I was a big Superman fan growing up. And, you know, they strike down they strike down the evil and then on to the next evil. But that's not that's not reality. Reality is. You strike it down, and then it festers. You know, it, we, we've seen it in this country. You know, you, you went from, uh, you, you want to know why that guy's the president? Because we let things fester. That's the truth. We, we, didn't, we didn't address certain things. We, we, we got Obama, and we pretended like, you know, oh, everything's fine. And, and it wasn't fine. And there were things that we needed to deal with and we didn't deal with. And then we let it get out of control. And now it's effing crazy. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, but when a bone breaks, I believe it heals stronger. So I'm like hopeful about that. But with artists, what I realized was if I just say, no, you're doing this, that's irrational. Yeah, I could probably get them to do it the first time, maybe the second time. But they will start to resent and hate me because no one does anything from a place that they think is irrational. Everyone thinks they're rational in thought. Even the crazy stuff that Trump does sometimes, he thinks he's being rational. And I'm probably more equipped to talk to him than most people, because I deal with irrational people every day. <laughs> um, and my job is to find one thing that I can justify to make them feel comfortable so I can get them on a wavelength of respect and start to move the needle. So if an artist says, oh, I don't want to do that, and they're being rational, I say, oh, okay, I can agree with you on this. Because then they're like, oh, okay, now we agree. We, you respect me. And I say, now that we have a mutual respect and you know that I'm not belittling you or talking down to you, even I'm, in my mind, I might be like, you're effing nuts. <laughs> like, I can slowly start to move the needle of a place of respect. Because that's what all people want on this planet. Is they just want to feel respected and spoken to with respect. For example, I'll move it from music to politics because I really don't want to use an example of artists because then I'd kind of put them on blast. You know, a lot of people say they can't believe that more than 50% of white women voted for Donald Trump considering all the stuff that he said. Okay, I know you didn't. I, I know you didn't. I know, I know you didn't. 
But here's my point. The, the stat was that they did. And if I was able to really make a difference, I would have handled that differently. Because I wouldn't have looked at it of, oh, my God, that's disgusting. How could they? He said all those things. He was degrading. I wouldn't have done that. Because no woman wants to feel when they're unsure of a decision that they, you know, they're going to be like, okay, I'm not going to speak to this person. I'm just going to make my vote. What I would have done is gone in and said, okay, here, here it is. I get it. West Virginia. I get it. No politician has done anything for your family. And for the last 10 years, your husband, your brother, your son has been unemployed and has been drinking and not acting like the man that you want him to be. And now some guy with an orange face shows up and promises coal back. And you know, because you're smart, it's not happening. But he's saying it, and for the first time in forever, they're acting like there's some kind of spirit in their soul. And they're up off the couch, and they feel like a man again. And for you, no politician's ever made a difference. And all you know is that this person is in your family, and if they're inspired, that's all you care about. I would have gone and said, if I'm Hillary, I would have gone and said, hey, I get it. You're right. Like, you need to make a decision for your family, not the whole nation, because the nation probably has let you down and not done much for you. But you have children, and you know that you teach your children the difference between right and wrong, and you know that this is a short-term solution. And now that I've addressed you with respect, let's talk about some of the facts. And those women might have hurt her. But instead, it was started off with an insult that you're ridiculous to do this. You're a woman. You should be on this side. And no one wants to be told what to do. And that translates into politics. That translates into any workplace out there. translates in how do you speak to your family. And I didn't know that until I was a manager. I didn't know that until my job was to be a manager. And shooting them down was losing their attention. And I realized I wasn't getting results anymore by being stern and firm and just putting it the way it was. I needed a new tactic. And the new tactic was to put my own ego aside, be patient, and have a conversation that might be a little bit harder to have and might even seem at first like I'm being a yes man for a split second because I'm finding something to justify. But I can tell you, You've seen my roster. I work with some of the hardest people to move the needle on, and some, of, some people have done a lot of irrational things. Um, and I've, behind the scenes, moved the needle a lot of times, and it's never been once with force. It's always been with respect. And that's what management did. Um, my question is, what do you think is the best field for someone who's like just starting out like us um, to go to in the, in the industry? Like, Where do you recommend starting out? Run. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, it really depends on where you want to end up in the industry and what your skill set is. I mean, if you, if you want to be on the road, you know, go into management and go to some artist or a manager and just say, look, put my ass on the road. Like, I'll do whatever it takes. You know, I'll, yeah, and, and you don't mind living on buses and doing what I did for three years. It sucks. Um, some people like it. You know, then that's a different thing. The, the music business on the road, some people absolutely love it, and that's a fun life, and you can go do that. If you're like, you know what, I really hate the road, then maybe going the agency route is great because they get to sit in an office, not deal with all the crazy, and book stuff, and then go to shows they want to go to. And, like, you know, our agents are like, man, I'm out all the time. Yeah, you're out locally. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, if you, uh, very similar, if you just love the songs, you can go into publishing. Um, because then it's really about the songs and 
you're not dealing with the, the stars as much, um, but you're dealing with the music. And that's an amazing job to have. And then if you're really nuts, go into management. <laughs> um, management can pay the most, um, but it is the most abusive. It is, it is, it's the place where you see the most suicide, to be honest with you. Um, and it's the most where you see the most depression because uh, there's the D David Geffen documentary, Inventing David Geffen, who's on PBS, really good documentary, you guys should all watch it. And someone says in that documentary, being a manager is like moving a mountain and the artist says the mountain is supposed to be there. Um, and that's really what it is. I mean, the hard part about management is your job is to take away most of the, most of the burden off the artist so they don't even know 90% of the stuff you do for them and then they don't appreciate it because how could they, they don't know and they, there's a tremendous amount of disrespect. Um, and a lot of artists, a lot of my young, I'm sorry, a lot of my young managers have come to me broken. Like, I just can't do this. Um, and I kind of have to encourage them and talk about what's real and what's not real. And uh, it's a very, very tough one. But, um, you know, and then the, the last one is, you know, you start a label. You know, and, and I think that's an interesting place to be right now because masters are coming back with great value because of the streaming business. And um, and being on, you know, that side of publishing and label is, is a good place to be right now. And it's not nearly as abusive. It's pretty abusive, but it's not as abusive. The manager's out there taking the abuse while you guys collect cash. <laughs> that's why I do both. Actually, that's why I do all of them. <laughs> So it was a couple months ago you mentioned on the Bill Simmons podcast that you thought bands were starting to make a comeback after like artists were kind of like dominating the mainstream as solos. I was wondering like kind of like what your thought process was and like because you kind of touched on it, but really to go in depth on that. So it's just bands. Yeah, I just think the music business goes in cycles, um, and you know you go super pop, and then you start to see singer songwriters coming back and everything else, and uh, you know you're seeing, you know we're starting to get real traction with uh, the Spencer Lee band right now and. Uh, we actually didn't try to work. We put out a couple you know, records here and there just to feel her so they could tour. Mm -hmm. um, and now I got a call yesterday that Sirius is putting it 35 times a day on one of, you know, one of the stations. And, you know, AAA is going hard on it now. And, um, and when people are, you know, they're about to go play all the festivals this summer for the first time. And they're an amazing band. That's an artist also who is one of the most talented people I've ever seen. And his band is incredible. But he's very self-destructive. Um, you know, and I try to change it and I realize I got Liam Gallagher on my roster now, you know, cause this dude is an absolute wild man. Um, and I've tried to stop that behavior many times, but it's just, he is who he is at this point. So, um, but you're seeing it with Greta Van Fleet. I mean, you know, they're an amazing band and people are loving the music and you're starting to see a want for rock bands again, because people are going to the festivals and they can only take so many DJs. Um, and, you know, it, with with streaming, it's gonna be really interesting because we no longer have to make music that people want to acquire. We just want to make music that people want to listen to. There's a very big difference. You know, um, you know, Mike Posner was an artist that didn't sell a lot of records, but in the streaming world, he would have murdered it. Um, and it was just five years too early. So, you know, you're looking at artists like, you know, Post, who now has translated into sales in huge, huge numbers, but when he was starting, he wasn't really selling anything. He was more of just someone you listen to. And streaming is giving us an opportunity to make it more about the music because we don't have to make the decision of what I used to do when I was a kid. I used to go to Sam Goody. You have no idea what that is. Um, used to, 
Okay. I used to go to Sam Goody and I had my little allowance, you know, of whatever money I'd made working, you know, whatever jobs I was doing, paper route, everything else. And I used to go in and be like, okay, today I can afford two CDs. <laughs> and I would walk around that entire store and figure out what two CDs I was going to buy. And then I would listen to those CDs incessantly over and over and over and over and over again. Now it's, uh, you take out your phone and every song ever made is in your phone waiting for you. It's just a completely different world than how we consume music and how we discover stars. So it's changed for me in the last few years. I, I've been so delicate and sensitive with every record. And now I'm like, I can't do that. I just got to let it out. And, you know, whether it happens today or six months out, I got to let the consumer just start listening and figuring it out for themselves. This stuff's good. Put it out. See what happens. And I think that's why when I look at bands, you know, the bands were struggling because a lack of access. You know, you have a huge audience on pop radio. You have a huge audience on uh, hip hop radio, huge audience on um, I hate calling it urban radio. I think it's a weird word. So I'd, I'd rather call it like a hip hop station than urban because I just don't think everybody who listens to hip hop music lives in a city and you know you have huge audience on you know country radio and you know where you don't have a big audience on alternative radio on rock radio it's a literally I think it's like 8 million in audience or 10 million it's tiny it's 10 so Mike is Mike Chester's here he's the guy who is uh, runs promotion and marketing for our entire company so he knows hi Mike. say hi to Mike and Mike, Mike came from the label system. He was uh, running all pop radio at Def Jam and Island Def Jam for years and was the one person in the building when no one would pay attention to me and Justin that kind of was like, okay, him and Eric were like, you know what, screw it. You guys want to go on the road? We'll put you out there and see what happens. Let's go. And went from being the guy at the label who helped me champion the building to now being the head of marketing with me at the company. Uh, but he is, a, you know, how many years in radio, Mike? So he knows how much the audience is. Um, so it was a uh, 10 million audience. So let's let's give them. I got Mike here, so this is better. Mike, how much big of an audience is all of pop radio? Okay, how big is uh, rhythmic? Okay, and then um, hip hop urban. It's access. So with streaming, rock has a shot again. So it's um, bands have a shot, and they already get the festival plays, and now they're going to get an opportunity for audience. Um, so I think that's where you'll start to see a, a shift. And it's all about commerce, unfortunately. Commerce and technology have been the number one movers for the music business. We didn't even have a music business until Tesla made the radio, and then there was a reason to have a business. And then people chased the money. So if rock starts to do massive streaming numbers, I guarantee you, you're going to start seeing CBS and iHeart and all these guys start saying, we're changing this station into a rock station. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So streaming's changing it and rock's coming back. And uh, it's now your turn. <laughs> it's actually, yeah. Cause it's, can, you, can you hold this and point that at me? <laughs> Instagram Live with Dave Phil. We're... Uh, <laughs> What were you saying? I, I think that's. <laughs> yeah, my hair is falling out. It's like yeah. super thin over there. Yeah. All, right. All right. We're doing, uh, let's see. We're f uh, friends with uh, a guy named uh, Dave Laurie, who was the manager of Jeff Buckley. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Buckley uh, died in 1994. When Buckley died, Dave Laurie spoke with uh, the person who had been the manager for Kurt Cobain to get help with how do I deal with this situation. Later on, when Michael Hutchins committed suicide, 
that person's manager reached out to Dave Laurie and said, how do I deal with this situation? Dave's point was, there's no book about how to deal with these sort of tragic situations. You dealt with the Manchester situation. If you were going to, going to create an outline for the book or you were going to write the first chapter, what would be some of the things that you would put in the book in terms of how am I going to deal with this situation, this tragedy? Uh, I mean, they're all different. I mean, I, I've now been involved um, with with Manchester. Then I did, uh, we did the telethon. Um, we did the telethon for the hurricanes, the hand in hand, and then uh, helped with the, the children's march. There's no right answer. You know, it goes back to what you said before. You just got to try. And the reason you try is because you're in the privileged position of still being here. You know, and... You know, I'm at a point now where I have to ask my wife for permission whenever I do one of these because it takes a lot out of me. Um, there's no like financial reward. She doesn't care about that. My wife's the founder of Fuck Cancer, so she really doesn't care. Um, she, her whole life is helping people. It, it's just you take it so much more personal when someone says, no, they can't help you when you're just trying to help people than when you're making a record to make some money. If an artist says, yeah, I'm not going to feature on that song, I'm like, okay, whatever, let's ne next. But when an artist says, yeah, I can't make it to perform at that, you're just broken. But you kind of keep going because when, when someone dies, the least you can do is show respect to their, to their families and to you know, their memory by giving some kind of effort to do something. You know, I, whenever I talk about Manchester, I always kind of remind myself that we talk about it in past tense, and, it, and it's actually coming up in a year since, since the uh, terrorist attack. It's May 22nd. Um, I got to go home. You know, we all got to go back to our families, and, and it was horrific, and, you know, people are broken and everything else, but there are, you know, over 20 families that someone's not coming home, ever. And there are other families where people are maimed or burned or their lives are changed forever and I get to go home and hug my babies so when you ask me how do you handle something like that you just take one step forward and another step after that and another step after that and you try to do something because you're in the privileged position to do so and I also firmly believe I think we're in a world where like people are afraid to say they're religious um, I believe in God like I, I have a strong belief in God and I, in my mind, don't understand why I get to live this life. Like I'm 36 years old. I'm privileged beyond in the success that I've had in my career. The financial success has been nuts. Then I got to marry like someone who's way out of my league. Um, and I got two of the most beautiful little kids who are healthy. And I'm kind of looking at my life like I wouldn't trade my life with any 36-year-old on the planet. There's no one I've seen. I literally think I have the best life of any 36-year-old on the planet. And I don't think you get to keep those blessings or they get to keep coming unless you give them back. If you don't kind of, it's like a, a glass that's being filled up with water. Unless you start pouring the water in other glasses, it will overflow and you'll make a mess. And something bad's going to happen. So like I, I just think that when I see stuff like this, it's hard for me to kind of turn away. I was a big Superman fan, and I was always I always admired the fact that 
I always thought I was like, God, he hears everything. There's always something else. But he was able to like, that must be so tough to have to decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And he could beat himself up and go crazy if he thought about that. But at one point, you got to do what you can do. And sometimes you just can't do it. And that's okay, too. And, you know, once you put yourself out there, everyone starts coming. You know, every single tragedy, hey, you should help. You did this. Hey, you should help. You should do it. And sometimes you pick up and you help. And sometimes you say, hey, I can't. If I do too much, I'm a break. So let me refer you to someone else. But I can't step in here. And that's okay. Um, so what I'd say is if I was to write a first chapter on what to do in a tragedy, if you're inspired to do so and you think you have the strength to do so, start somewhere and you'll figure it out after that. I saw <laughs> that you were uh, working on comic books. Yeah. Do you want to explain? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. We announced in the New York Times about a month ago, Dave Maisel is the founding chairman of Marvel Studios. Um, he is what I call my quirky, super nerd, super you know, mad scientist friend. Um, Dave is one of the quirkiest human beings alive. He, he literally, we were in a meeting yesterday, and he fully admitted that he wanted to make Marvel into a studio so that he can make comics cool enough that women would talk to him. Because <laughs> But not like talk to him that way. Like he would have something to talk about because all he wanted to talk about was comics and no women wanted to talk to him about comics. But he was like, if I make Marvel big enough, then we'll have something in common. They'll like Iron Man. <laughs> it worked. Um, but, you know, here's a guy who who literally went to a company that was worth 300 million and turned it into 4 billion at the sale. Um, convinced them that they shouldn't be licensing movies, wrote the whole storyboard for Iron Man and like wrote out the entire Avengers universe. That's why there were two Hulk movies in the same year because he was trying to get the Hulk license out to reform the Avengers. Um, and then it sold and he stepped away from the business for a while because he is really close with his 91 year old mother and just wanted to take care of her and relax for a minute. And um, then he got fascinated by the Angry Birds property because he was on the board of a, com of a company and he was like, well, I think I could turn an app into an animated movie. That would be fun and brought in full self-financing and the, the game was pretty much dead at that point and everyone said, he's crazy, he's lost it. Movie did $350 million, was the biggest movie for Sony that year. Um, they made it for $72 million, did $80 million in profit um, after the marketing expenses. And so he's someone else who like every single time they tell him no. The best thing he ever said to me, he goes, when I started... Marvel Studios and said I was going to make Iron Man the movie that New Line had the rights for for 10 years never made people were like Iron Man isn't that a triathlon <laughs> like, like it's and now it's you know the biggest movies we've ever seen and a huge part of our culture um, so he and I were friends and I was pestering him like hey that's what happened originally was um, someone offered our company uh, if we wanted to buy all the Stan Lee properties that were never made in the comics. And we looked at them, and I said, you should call my friend Dave Maisel. This is his world. And he came and looked at him, and he goes, there's a reason these were made in the comics. Stan didn't want them made in the comics because they weren't fleshed out. They weren't the ones that were, you shouldn't do this. It's overpriced based on what Marvel's doing. There's a reason Marvel hasn't bought this. And my buddy Scott, my CEO, was so impressed by Dave. He goes, why aren't we doing something with him? And I said, if you could figure it out, I've been trying for years. And Scott was the architect of putting this deal together. And we announced a studio, Mythos Studios, that uh, we ended up buying 50, you know, getting 50% of Aspen Comics, which in, from 1998 to 2002 was the biggest comic in the world uh, with Fathom over uh, DC and Marvel. 
Um, and then we found Dave came up with some other properties uh, that we haven't announced yet. Um, and we're doing these large animated films, some live action. And we announced a month ago, and the amount of people that want to be involved is pretty crazy. And it, we're having fun. I mean, it's one of those inspire the world to try things. Like, why not? You know, so uh, we're, we're doing, in our company, we have a lot of stuff. We have a whole TV and film department, and we're, we just sold uh, a big horror series of micro-budget horror films. Um, those will be like five, $10 million films. But the stuff Dave is doing is like $70 million now. Um, and he has brilliant ideas that I don't want to talk about publicly here, but I'm having fun. I mean, we talk in the middle of the night, and he's he's an innovator, and he's quirky as hell. And L.A. is a place where, you know, a lot of people get deals done because they're smooth and they're suave and they can kind of fit into the cool LA, you know, scene of like, I'm, you know, I'm important. And Dave's not that guy. Dave's weird and quirky. And, you know, somebody wrote about him as being on the spectrum and he was like, what does that mean? I was like, it means you're genius. Just go with it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but he, he's someone who's so meticulous on detail. And the thing that I love about him is, you know, I, I made a decision a long time ago build, to build a brand for myself. And you guys are young, but the managers before me didn't do that. There was one person who did, he was called the Colonel with Elvis. And he was criticized beyond. And most managers since then have stayed in the background, and that's what they did. And I was in Atlanta, and a group, Outcast was the biggest group in the world. They had a manager named Blue, and Puff Daddy came to town, and him and Blue did a party, and everybody went. Next year, Outcast breaks up. Puff Daddy comes back to town, and Blue's not on the party, and no one cares. And I decided at that point, the success and failure of my artist was not gonna dictate where I was gonna go in the world. I was gonna build my own brand, always be there for them, and if anything, my brand could help sustain them. So my brand, when Justin was down and out, I remained powerful because of the brand that I built and the things that I was doing, so I could make sure that he had another shot when the time came. Um, and, you know, Dave, with Mythos, he kind of never, he never built a brand. He never got the credit that he was due. And that was part of my pitch to him. I said, this time around, when you do it, I'm gonna make sure the world knows. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we're excited. We're having fun and we'll see what happens. You know, worst case scenarios, we fail and then we do it again. But I don't think, he's not the kind of guy that fails. Oh, and that was, the th I've almost lost track. That's what I was gonna say, do the work. So people criticize, can criticize me for, oh, I think this dude wants to be famous. With the 99% of the stuff that we do, and Mike always laughs because when Mike came to work for us for the label and he actually got behind closed doors, he was in shock with the stuff that we actually own. Mm -hmm. So we own five management companies that you guys don't know we own, big ones. Um, big, big artists. You have no idea that I'm associated with. And we've kept it quiet. And we are invested in big companies you don't know we're invested in. And the reason is because it's nothing helped me by putting that out there. But I put myself out there in ways that would help. And the one thing I always said is, who cares if they criticize us? They'll never be able to beat us because we do the work. A lot of people, they, you know, they go around and they say, look at my company, everything else. But you get behind clothes, they don't do the work. Um, it's, and it's all smoke and mirrors. Um, and when these cameras you know, go off and uh, we stop the interview, I'll tell you one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but David Maisel does the work. He is meticulous about the detail of a scene and his vision for, you know, uh, how's this animation going to look compared to this, every single thing. And I said to myself, this guy is quirky as hell, but he cares so much. 
and that's the kind of person you want to bet on, not the cool guy. Hello. Um, but so David, but hold on. David, you're cool. <laughs> David. David Mazel, you're a cool guy, bro. Hello. Don't worry about it. Okay, so um, just to give you a little context, I'm working on my master's in music and entertainment management. So I'm Ooh, one of the smarty pants. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So no, not even. I'm just, I'm uh, just messing with just you. one of the, the artsy guys. I want to get the business side in there, too. Um, for a long time, people have told me, like, you know, if you're trying to go into management, um, you're going to be on the road a lot because I've thought of like touring, you know, and just hearing everything, like all of your experiences. I'm still into it. I'm still into the idea. You saying that you can have a family and do this, even though, you know, for the first couple of years, it's going to be rough. You're out for a few months. It like hasn't changed my mind. Like I'm still passionate about it. And um, I appreciate it. It wasn't even a question. It was I just tell. Like, it was just like. Well, can I respond? Of course. Yeah. Okay. One, I appreciate it. And two, I think you're going to be successful because you have the right mentality. Because you're willing to do the work and you're willing to, you know, go through the struggle. And at certain times it will be fun. Like you make it fun. Like I was on the road and we would take the tour bus over like Wendy's or McDonald's. But the tour bus was too big and it was late nights only. The drive throughs open. So I'd put on a robe with slippers and I'd walk through the drive through <laughs> And I'd be like, hey, uh, it's, it's been a late night. <laughs> uh, and you kind of just make it fun for your friends. Like, we, we went to Memphis for a show. All we did was play Walking in Memphis and, like, you know, went to Graceland and got the glasses and acted like idiots. Um, in Japan, uh, we realized that they were so polite that at between every set, they would stand and clap, stand ovation, then sit down, stand and clap, sit down. So we decided the opening act for Justin in the arena that night would be me and Ryan, my buddy. And we pretended to be barefoot tap dancers from the hills of South Carolina. Um, and, and we got standing ovations. <laughs> um, so you, you make it fun when you're on the road. But the truth is I've never had a better time than what I'm having now. I mean, like coming home and making it home for bath time and, you know, having my kids run up and, you know, daddy, your kids don't care. And you'll see that part of life later on. Um, and if I didn't make sure that I was a dad first, I'd be a hypocrite. And and by the way, I say all this, and like this week, because I knew most of June I'm, tra I'm traveling, and half of it I'm taking my family. I don't like to do dinner meetings, because I feel like they're overrated. You can make things happen at breakfast and lunch and be home for dinner when you have a family. But every day this week, pretty much, I've had a dinner meeting. And um, my wife was like, talking all that crap in interviews, saying how you're home. Been out, <laughs> been out three times this week. And that's the other thing. Marry someone who holds you accountable at all times. Um, so, uh, and, and if they care about what you do, you're marrying the wrong person. You know, I married someone who literally does not give a shit about what I do. My wife's never seen Never Say Never. <laughs> I'm like, it's a movie that I made that I'm in. It was a blockbuster. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I'm, nah, I'm not interested. <laughs> 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 So uh, good luck to you, and that's awesome. And the fact that you're getting both the business mind and the creative mind, that's great. Um, so you mentioned that... Um, okay, we got two more questions, and then we'll go. Is that good? Okay, so... Well, what uh, do I have next? Oh. I think you won an award next or something. Oh, something like yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. That thing. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, you mentioned that like your company's like super involved with other companies and like artists that we don't know about, big things. What do you look for when you're want to invest or assign an artist or just be involved in a bigger company? Um, at this point, it's a combination of if someone in my company wants to do something, I trust them. You know, we had four seasons of Scorpion on CBS. Um, 
we created the show, but I got a lot of credit for it, but it was some of my company, Scott Manson, who really made that deal happen, and I just trusted him. Um, but a lot of times it's, I'm thinking, I've always thought about things like chess. Like in chess, you, you don't look for what the next move is. You try to anticipate what the move is five to ten moves down the board. And, you know, I always looked at life kind of that way. Like, you know, if, if I want to go into politics someday, like, how do I need to act now so they don't catch me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it, it's, it's what I look for is the story. At this point, it's not about money. You know, I still, part of the story is like, can you do this? Can you pull that off? But I'm making bets on, on legacy and, and stories and, you know, how much fun can I have along the way? You know, so, and, and being first. I mean, you know, I'll do deals and people, man, that's nuts. But yeah, I don't care about failure at this point. Like I want to do the nutty thing because nothing reasonable ever became great. It's the unreasonable acts that became great. So I'm looking for those. Like what can I take a chance on? And sometimes taking a chance on someone in my office and their belief in something. And sometimes it's, you know, me looking at a new space and doing, you know, this massive crypto deal the first time our industry has done something like that. And everyone's looking at me like, you're crazy. And I'm like, well, am I? <laughs> you know, so we'll find out. But that's kind of what I look for. I look for the adventure because life's too short. And you kind of go through life and, you know, you could read all the data and follow the rules. Mm. But it's not really much fun. And if you follow your gut, even when you're wrong, when you follow your gut, you feel, you'll probably hear me repeat a lot of this if you watch me later. <laughs> um, I kind of do the same. Time. I'm like a politician at this point. I just repeat the talking points. Um, but I believe this. I mean, you, you follow your gut because it's better to do it that way. Because mm. when you're wrong, you're like, ah, I was wrong. And when you're right, you're like, I knew it. And when you're following data and you ignore your gut and you're wrong, you want to freak out. You know, because you're like, I knew it. My gut told me and I follow what everyone said. So life's about being happy. So follow things that would make you happy and follow your instincts. Um, what's a... Sorry, you don't get to ask your next question. <laughs> <laughs> what is a big, if not your biggest um or who is uh your inspiration or someone that gave you an important piece of advice that you kept with you for a while um my family is my biggest inspiration you know my uh you know my grandparents and my parents um they've in my life given me the best advice they made me who i am today um so i would start there and then in the industry i'd say david geffen you know, I read a book about it when I was 19, when I was 30. Uh, we went out to lunch for the first time, and we've gone to lunch or dinner pretty much every month since for six years. Um, and I've never done business with him. I refuse to do business with him. I don't think he, he doesn't need to do business with me. He's super successful. <laughs> but um, to be able to, my 36th birthday, he was there. You know, it was actually, it was after Manchester, and I needed to get away, and he insisted on taking me and my family away on a vacation. And for that entire week, every morning I'd wake up at 7 o'clock. I was on his boat living that life. Um, and every morning I'd wake up at 7 o'clock, meet him on the top deck, and we'd talk for hours. And when we celebrated my birthday, we're meeting up with a bunch of my friends a couple days later. But my actual birthday, I was there with him. And I basically made this toast, and I said, to be able to come friends with your hero is a very rare thing. And, you know, to have his wisdom and to have his guidance, and um, it's pretty surreal. I mean, to sit in a dorm room when you're 19 and read a book about somebody and say, I could do this. And then to spend your 36th birthday with them right in front of you, you know, and they bought the cake. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, 
it, it's something I really treasure and one of the luckiest things in my life. And he's he's truly an inspiration and someone I value tremendously. So we need to thank him for being on Music Biz 101 and more. Thank you, guys. Say, Dave, what do Paul Sinclair from Atlantic, Tom Hefter from Ticketmaster, Rosie Lopez from Tommy Boy, and Heather Ellis from Pandora all have in common? They're all big wigs in the music and entertainment industry, Esteban. And? They all hate warm beer. And? They've all been guests on the Music Biz 101 and More radio show at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Bingo. If you want to learn more about the music and entertainment biz, tweet in a question and tune in every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock to Music, music Biz 101, 101 and More on Brave New Radio. radio. 